0: Memoirs the hardest thing to publish. And she got me on the phone and she's like, look, you're a great writer, but no one knows who you are. So until I can Google you and see a litany of things to click on and accomplishments, I need to be able to sell you to a Simon and & Schuster. And they're not going to buy it if they don't know who you are, if they can't Google you and see something of substance. She recommended storytelling classes. She recommended podcasting. She recommended getting, uh, I had nothing published then. She's like, get some pieces published.
1: Finding space to turn your creative passion into something that is less private and more shared and for others to interact with on perhaps a bigger scale can be a very big decision. It is also an enticing one I better understand the debate of wanting to keep some practices for yourself, but I also deeply understand the desire to connect and to want to help as many people as possible with what you have to say with your practice and process. This story today starts after making that decision. My guest wanted to write her own story on a bigger scale and share it by way of a memoir. But then reality struck and she was given the advice to find a way to become even more visible before that bigger step of writing a book happens. The decision she made to hold space for other stories by leveraging an experience she had in order to share the creative space and collaboration was how her podcast, The Only One in the Room, was born. And it's also where our stories intersect. I love this conversation we have. I hope you love it as much as I do, and I also hope that it might help you make a decision for yourself about something that could grow to warm the hearts of thousands of people, just like it did for my guest, Laura Cathcart Robbins. Enjoy. Hi, welcome back. This is Barcia your host. Thank you for joining me again on People Be Begin. And our very special guest today is someone who I've had the pleasure of collaborating with and learning from and building something with. She is the host and creator of The Only One in the Room. She came into my life first thing in 2019 and presented an opportunity to make something amazing. And I believe we accomplished that. She is a lover of trivia and TV show jingles. A lover of Hun, <laughs> which we'll explain later. And she's also an accomplished writer, an advocate, a storyteller, a holder of space for others, and she's so many other things, but I'm also privileged to call her my friend. Welcome, mm. Laura Cathcart-Robbins. Thank you, Barsi. I The lover of
0: jingles. <laughs> that was a surprise. I so am. I so am. Commercials were my very first love. My really? mom tells me yeah when I was 2 years old or less I was less I was in a walker like you know as a Whoa. baby and I would rush over to the television during the commercials and be transfixed until they finished and then I'd roll away somewhere oh I my love God. commercials and jingles <laughs>
1: Oh, my God! Okay, so, so I didn't know that, but I know yeah. that we just shared like trivia when things yes. went remote yes. and I thought that yes. was really fun, so I thought I would add that in. Yes, well, it's a
0: good it's a good fun fact for me, so thank you.
1: That's a great fact, especially with the commercial part. I don't know anyone else who, uh, who yeah. at that young, young, young age. Mm-hmm. so obsessed with jingles. That's so funny. <laughs> So do you miss do you miss the jingle? Because it's kind of gone away. Um, it's gone away on some of our our, our more kind of A list, A
0: rotation commercials, but like Liberty Mutual <laughs> and those kind True. of commercials still have jingles. So I, I I'm holding fast to those.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Poor
0: Scott. It's a, it's I amazing. drive him crazy with them.
1: Do you sing them around the house?
0: Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> liberty, Liberty, Liberty. <laughs>
1: We'll just talk about this for the rest of the show. Yes. He'll be like, stop.
0: Don't. Don't. Don't say another word.
1: Yes. So uh, if you can't tell, I'm happy you're here. Yes. <laughs> we're already having so much fun. So um, speaking of fun, I thought it would be fun to start by stealing a play from your own playbook and starting with an icebreaker question. Ooh. And this one's a little meta. Okay. We'll, we'll see how it goes. If you had an only one statement for yourself, what would it be?
0: That is meta. Um, let's see. Oh, boy. You know, that's a problem. Like, I don't even know if I could be a guest on my own show because I have so many only one stories.
1: <laughs> Which is kind of the, the yeah. whole
0: show's point, right? <laughs> right, right. I would say for right now in my life, I am the only one. Who is, who has found her own voice and is finally using it, for the first time.
1: Mm, that's powerful.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Thank
0: you for digging that out of me. Yeah.
1: That's that's. Is that the first time you've thought of it that way?
0: Um, it's certainly not the first time I've thought of it that way, but it, I think it's the first time I've said it out loud
1: that mm. way. That's also meta.
0: Yeah. When I'm writing, I think it's got to be voicey. It's got to be voicey. Where's my voice? Where's my voice? Where's my voice? I do that on every page, in every paragraph. It's my voice in here? Is my voice in here. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know my voice before, you know, pre-getting sober, pre-doing all this really in-depth work on myself, pre-my kids kind of growing up or, or getting old enough, got like high school age, pre-that. I didn't really know what my own voice was, so now i i try to make sure it's in every word of every paragraph on every page so i'm always coaching myself to di- to dig for it so i i'm aware that i i have found my voice later in life and that i'm using it but i don't think i've said it like that now
1: wow thank you for sharing that i had a i had a different mm-hmm. icebreaker question originally which kind of i kind of want to ask you now as well sure. because writing seems very connected to the answer of this question And I was going to ask you if you remember the first thing that you that you wrote that you felt you were proud of. So I've
0: been writing, you know, since I was like six. Mm -hmm. And when I was eight, I wrote a story (laughs) and entered it into the Ebony Junior Ebony, Ebony Magazine, everybody knows Mm -hmm. at that time. Back in the seventies, there was also an Ebony Junior that was for kids, cool. And they had a, a competition, a writing competition, and I won third prize in that. And it was a it was a fictional story uh, that I wrote. It was really about me, but I pretended like it was fiction. And it was about a girl who didn't get along with her stepfather and found this solace at her best friend's house and got to eat whatever she wanted there and got to. Sleep in a bed like the one she wanted. And, you know, it was just like this idyllic world at her friend's house and this world that she wasn't crazy about, that she didn't feel that she could be herself in at home. Mm. But it wasn't quite that sophisticated. It was, you know, told through the, you know, from an eight year old's perspective. So, but I won third place with that. And I was so proud of that. I kept that certificate for a really long time. My mom still might have it, it was framed. <laughs> she kept everything.
1: That's really special. That's worth keeping.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Do you remember what it was about writing at that young age that that felt like the avenue, like the thing to express yourself through? So
0: I have to go back to my mom again. When My mom was 19 when she had me. She was still a student at the University of Illinois. And she was reading authors like Dostoevsky and Gogol in her classes. And she would come home and read those to me, those were my bedtime stories. Whoa. And so I grew up with the overcoat and the nose and all these, you know, kind of Russian fables (laughs) that were, and other things, like a tree grows in Brooklyn and just anything that she was reading, she would read to me. And I don't know, it's just like I was reading, I read at a very early age and it seemed the companion piece to reading would be to write I was so inspired and so filled up by the stories that, that she was reading to me and that I was reading on my own that I just wanted I wanted to duplicate that I I needed to write so I was writing really early as well
1: what, what an amazing influence that you had right away yeah and yeah. I love that it came through your mom yes that's really special thank you for sharing that sure I relate to that because i was a young writer myself so i'm i'm curious to see how that comes to fruition for other people Mm -hmm. and a lot of people who listen to this are also creative people who write and, and do things in that in that way so yeah i think it's very relatable and also special i don't know anyone else with a story quite like that of how they got started
0: yeah, I, I, I don't either. I haven't heard anybody go, oh, yeah, me too, when when I've told them that. People are kind of like, oh, that's, that's probably not appropriate.
1: <laughs> I know, right? Your mom's like, two birds, one stone. I have homework. You're going to listen exactly. to it. <laughs> exactly. Wow. That's great. I, I have to share this just because I think it's so funny too. When I, I I, started writing before I could write and I had my mom, I had her write it down for me and I wrote a little poem to my best friend. Ah. And I was like, write it with this color marker because mm. um, it was like roses are red, violets are blue kind of a thing. You were a writer-director. I guess. It's <laughs> like, this yeah. is what you're going to do. I did direct my bedtime stories. I made my mom, got up and like play with doll clothes and pretend they were mine and make her I would assign characters and I was producing it absolutely yes yes <laughs> that's so funny producer from an early age <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my gosh my poor brother who was forced mm. to wear costumes and <laughs> great. anyway I digress so <laughs> speaking of the dynamic we have so I mentioned yes. That you, Laura, are the host and creator of the popular podcast called The Only One in the Room, which uh, Scott Slaughter co-hosts with you, who that's who Hun is, who you're also in love with. And he has also stepped up his role as a producer as well. He really stepped up his game last year when everything went to, we won't say what. Um, Yes. So, (laughs) and I'm grateful. Yes, remote. That's what we'll call it. (laughs) Yes. When everything went to remote. Um, (laughs) I I'm so grateful to work on this show and to be the executive producer of the show. And like I said, when you guys showed up in my life in 2019, it was a game changer for myself and my business. But I would really just like you to share with the listener what the show is about. Can you tell can you just tell us what the only one in the room is? Yeah, the only one in the room
0: Well, it's a show that originated with an experience I had of being the only black person at a 600-person writer's retreat, a three-day retreat. And when I say the only black person, I mean including the people that work there. Like, there was no one there for three days who, who looked like me. And it was a fantastic retreat. It was a deep dive. I loved it. And at the same time, I had this very solo experience of Mm. being what we call in DEIJ work, which is diversity, what is it? (laughs) Diversity, (laughs) equity, inclusion, and justice work, a singleton. I I was a singleton in that instance. And that's what we try to avoid in classrooms, is Mm. anyone having a singleton experience. And so I wrote about it when I got home. And so the retreat ended on Thursday. I got home on Friday. I wrote it. Friday night, pitched it out on Sunday, and on Monday it was live in the Huffington Post or HuffPo, which just merged with BuzzFeed, by the way. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yes. So, but I pitched it to them, and she published it. And she, um, Emily McCombs, was my editor there. Uh, it went live Monday morning, and it went viral immediately. And I, I had never had anything like that happen before. And the responses that we got, this is a very long answer to your question. The responses that we got were, there was kind of no median, they were, you know, from people of all ages and ethnicities and, you know, abilities, disabilities, gender orientation, sexual orientation. And they all connected with the feeling of being the only one in the room that being alone in a room full of people. And a lot of those responses were hashtagged the only one in the room, which Mm -hmm. was a hashtag I had never seen before. And so I, I was in a podcasting class at the time at the Writing Pad, which is actually a brick-and-mortar place here in Los Angeles, but it's also um, online.
1: Mm-hmm. Now it's
0: entirely online because of the pandemic, but I actually went to these classes in person. And so for the project, um, I decided to call it the, the my podcast project, The Only One in the Room. And then um, and that's what we brought to you right. when a couple months later. Yeah.
1: Yes. Thank you for sharing that. And and so the show itself brings on. I, I love the way that you did your intro. That we still keep this tagline. And uh, how do you say it? The show. It's like something, something. The show. But this show is for everyone. Was, oh, this
0: podcast is for anyone who's ever felt alone in a room full of people. Which is to say, this podcast is for everyone.
1: I think that really summarizes what it is. Once yeah. you hear that backstory, because. Mm-hmm. I remember something that you said when we were first talking that, you, that we still say all the time, that, or that you've mentioned more than once since then, but that uh, the realization was that a lot of people feel this way and, yes. can, and that anyone can feel this way. And I think that was a very interesting thing to realize because this would be a very different show if that realization didn't happen. And if we mm-hmm. went, in, we could have gone in a very different direction with it, right? Which wouldn't have been a bad direction. It just would have been a different one. But I think the fact that it opens itself up to so many types of voices, yes. I think I think that really makes it special. And it's been such a joy uh, seeing that unfold. So mm-hmm. thanks for explaining it to yeah, of course. all of us. So I, I want to talk about, we talked about your writing a little bit, and when we met, we i think it was right after we decided to work together you had a story slam or a basically mm. a, a reading that you were going to do with others and you've won competitions there so you've always won competitions i learned today since you <laughs> <laughs> since you won your first well, piece when I you were eight i was third in the avenue
0: junior competition
1: <laughs> well that's still winning something in that's my true. opinion yeah. i didn't win anything for my poem when i wrote it <laughs>
0: So, you won love from your best friend I'm I sure I did
1: her name was Laura too actually I just re- remembered ah, her name was Laura nice. um, how funny so anyways you were doing these story slams and you were also writing for things like HuffPo what was it what's the intersection for you where did you decide that there's there's an intersection between writing and performing not just writing What what was that for you Oh boy,
0: that's a good question. Um, I don't know that there was a decision there, except for, you know, just to back up a little bit, I had sent out a book proposal for a memoir. I'd taken a memoir class and taken a book proposal class. Mm-hmm. So I took a lot of classes. As you do. <laughs> yes. And and just to back up, and not to go really down into this, but I had gone to treatment for drug and alcohol addiction in in July of twenty. 20- 2008 and after I came home I couldn't write anymore I, I couldn't I tried I, I tried to um, sit down I tried to figure out a way to you know get my creative juices going but there was nothing mm-hmm. and that lasted for about five years I also couldn't read really I couldn't read for pleasure I couldn't read anything it was it was just like my capacity for that had disappeared and I was really upset about that that lack because it was so a part of who I was. So I started taking classes. I figured if I had a deadline and an instructor and someone making me, Mm -hmm. then I would read even if it was just for that class, but that would be something, you know, and it was better than nothing. And I was really afraid that I was never going to get it back. Mm -hmm. You know, this really insatiable love that I had for both reading and writing. And so I started taking classes. I went to UCLA Extension. I um, took classes from a friend of mine, Stephanie Wilder Taylor, who does writing classes in her friend's backyard. Mm-hmm. I went to the writing pad. I was taking all these classes, and slowly I started kind of getting my mojo back. but it was it was a slow process, and i, I it wasn't effortless. I really had to keep working for it, which mm-hmm. I didn't want to. I just wanted it to flow. Mm-hmm. So I kept going to classes. So I was taking all these classes and I took this, I took several writing classes, several memoir classes and a book proposal class. And so I had written a book proposal after my memoir class about the memoir that I wanted to write that I hadn't written yet, wrote three chapters, wrote the proposal, which is fucking hard to do. A book proposal is no joke.
1: I've heard that. I've heard it's yeah. the worst, one of the hardest parts.
0: It's so hard because it's not creative at all. It's mm-hmm. it's mainly marketing. And anyway,
1: yeah.
0: So I took this class and I sent out the proposal to agents. And you know, I was, it was really their shots in the dark because I didn't even know if I was prepared to write this memoir that I was pitching. Mm-hmm. But I kept kind of putting one foot in front of the other because I really wanted to get back what I had lost. And I work well with deadlines, so I figured if someone an agent said yes. I want it, then I would be forced to write this memoir. So that was around this time. I had sent it out to a few agents and one of the agents was so kind. um, Anal Singh is her name, I forgot the agency. And she got me on the phone and she's like, look, you're a great writer, but no one knows who you are. Memoir is the hardest thing to publish. So until I can Google you and see a litany of things to click on and accomplishments, I need to be able to sell you to a Simon & Schuster, right? And they're not going to buy it if they don't know who you are, if they can't Google you and see something of substance. So you're going to need to get something that looks like an author's platform, which is what she kind of gave me the instructions for how to build that. She recommended storytelling classes. She recommended podcasting. She recommended getting uh, i had nothing published then. She's like, get some pieces published. Get as many pieces. It doesn't matter where it is. Just get them out there. Get a website so that they can go on your site. Start a blog. Mm. You know, get a blog going. So after she and I got off the phone, I, I I started the blog. So I wrote a blog every week for like two years, and I did that. I did more writing on my memoir. I I, I took storytelling classes and started entering storytelling competitions, which is terrifying
1: terrifying. And storytelling competitions, is that when yes. you would go live and have to do this in yes. front of people? That's like
0: okay. the moth, which is like the mother of storytelling competitions. Right. So, you know, it's I'm not I was, I live in LA, I moved here because I wanted to direct commercials, going back to my being in a walker, and looking at the commercials at, you know, oh my age gosh. one. <laughs> I love commercials so much, I wanted to direct them. And they told me that would be in LA. So I moved here and went to work for a commercial director for a while. Okay. I. But I never wanted to act. I never wanted to be an actress. I never wanted to be in front of the camera or in front of a microphone. So I didn't have any of that experience, that a lot of people who moved to L.A. have at least tried out performing in some right. capacity. I never did. And so mm-hmm. this was you know me at age 53 or 54 being in front of a microphone for the first time or being on a stage for the first time and performing which like I said was terrifying but you know she she gave me the goods she gave me a, a list of things to accomplish so that I could get to where I want to be so I was doing everything she said
1: and it worked and it worked well you yeah. you it turns out you're really good at it did you discover that or was that a learning curve for you or were you just like oh I this is fun now because I realize I maybe have a knack for it what, what was that like you mean the storytelling, mm-hmm, the the performance yeah, part? Yeah, I
0: don't. I don't know if I would
1: say that I'm really good at it. I mean, I mean didn't you win a Moth Slam? I did. That's <laughs> really, really hard to do. That's one of the impossible feats That's that true. many people That's try true. to. Okay, okay, I'm just. I have to call that out. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say that I, I'm, I'm not
0: comfortable with it. Um, okay, entirely. I, it, it's so. Is so much more scary to me than it is fun that um, if I never had to do it again, I would never do it again.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Th- thank you for sharing. That's a really honest answer. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, that journey as well, because you said so many things in that, that I could, that I was like, Oh, like I just want to comment on everything, <laughs> but I wanted you to finish the storyline there. But one thing I, I just want to point out is that, first of all, I I know that feeling of being blocked for years and Mm. it's scary and it can feel desperate and it can feel like it's never going to end because especially when you don't have tools to bring the end into sight, right? Yes. And then we look for ways to like grab things to grasp onto. And um, the fact that you found a way to create, to leverage something you knew about yourself, which was, Deadlines work for me, so you started taking. Mm-hmm. You created a structure, and uh, I just want to share that because we talk about a lot of this stuff on the show and how to get through those moments, especially big, big blocks like that. And I also want to point out that they're normal; that they happen. They mm. and sometimes they last for a really long time, and sometimes they don't. But when they do, those are the scariest ones, or can be the scariest ones. So it's really figuring out, you know, like you did, what, what, what helps me? Like, what's my, what are my tools? What works for me when I'm stuck? And how can I build a situation or a structure that will push me forward, even though it's, like you said, effortful? Yes. And, and that makes so much sense. Cause I know that you're a diligent learner and you like structure. So this is this helps me really put into frame what I already know about you in, in the the journey of how you ended up sort of being so diligent. And so you like framework Mm. and um, I appreciate that about you, but this makes this explanation makes so much sense to me. So thank you for sharing that with everyone. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because you mentioned, so I didn't know you came to LA for wanting to direct (laughs) commercials. That's, that's really cool and you did that for a while so i i wanted to talk about the entrepreneurial journey that happens in podcasting but i want to start with an entrepreneurial journey that you had which you had a pr company in Mm your 20s right yes okay so this was it commercial work you wanted to direct commercials and then how did you end up starting this pr company so young and a successful one yeah. Um,
0: thank you for that. I, so I, I moved out here, I think I was 23 and I went to work for Fred Peterman, who was, he and Joe Pitka were like the two premier commercial directors. Fred did all of like the Coca-Cola stuff and all the car stuff and Joe did Nike and they were right four streets apart from each other in Venice, California. And so it was, it was great. It was, uh, it was glamorous in in the way that only commercials could be grown because it wasn't like TV or film it wasn't as respected by other people but for me it was everything like the Clio awards which are the commercial awards were the ones I watched every year even before I moved
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> that's great
0: <laughs> so I was in heaven um with these two directors and just being in the middle of all that and and I had a friend who, is actually there's a comedian named Senbad, and she's Mm -hmm. his sister. And Mm -hmm. she and I were friends, and she was doing his publicity. And she would ask me to help her with her press releases, just because she knew that I wrote well. And so I was doing that for her. And she was like, you know, you should just do this. Like you're, you're great at this. You should, you should do press releases, you should do PR, which I had never even considered. And I had hit a ceiling with Fred. I mean, Fred was the director. I had started as a receptionist. I was editing his reels to send out, like, if Mattel wanted a reel, I would put all the kids' stuff on a reel and send it to them. Mm. This is when, like, it was actual physical, like, the big tapes. You had to go Can to, to the
1: UPS. You had to, like, oh, ship yeah. it. <laughs> yes, yes,
0: all of that. And so she she knew of someone. They were, It's called the Baird Company, and they were a corporate entertainment PR firm. And they were looking for a black woman. I don't know why. I mean, I didn't know why. I know why now. (laughs) But they were looking for a black woman then to train, to be a publicist. Mm -hmm. And so I went in and talked to the woman who owns it. Her name's Prudence. Prudence Baird. And she hired me on the spot. And man, she was amazing. Like she taught me everything there was to know about PR. She had just taken on inner city cinemas, which was AMC Theaters was opening. Kind of like what Magic Johnson did a few years later, opening theaters in the inner cities. Mm, cool. Um, but Inner City Cinemas was supposed to be that, and AMC Theaters was bankrolling it, or they were investors in it, mm-hmm. and they wanted to have someone of color, kind of, you know, in front of the mic on that. Mm-hmm. So she, it was it was a smart move. I would have hired a black person too <laughs> if I were them. So yeah, so it was it was great. She was, like I said, she was absolutely incredible. A couple years in, I started bringing in clients and I had a client roster of about 12 or 13. I asked her to make me a partner. She wanted to have a baby, Mm -hmm. so she wanted to slow down her her company and not grow. So I went out on my own and I took my 13 clients with me. And that's how I started Cathcart Public Relations, because that was before I was married. Mhm. And uh and I did that got married while while I had Cathcart public relations became Laura Cathcart Robbins. And then, you know, my my son is 23 years old today, but when I got pregnant with him is when I started shuttering my company. Mm-hmm. So by the time he was born my company
1: didn't exist anymore
0: in oh, 1998.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm happy to hear the, all the intention behind everything. I like when that happens. I think that's really cool and when opportunities yeah. show up to match those intentions. so I, I like I like that story just because I didn't I've never heard the whole story so appreciate mm. I appreciate it. So do you feel like you're so you're really good at booking guests and getting great guests and following through and finding ways to just make that side happen and as a as a producer, as a company, I work with a lot of, podcasters and that is a very difficult part of the puzzle for most and you're brilliant at it. So do you feel like the background in PR and your background in everything you just outlaid for us does that influence that or is is it something else? Yeah. I mean,
0: I absolutely use all the tools that I learned as a publicist when when booking guests. That was really helpful when this part of the job, when this part of the podcasting job came into play. I was like, oh, I can do this. Because even though I was never like a talent booker, there's so many of the same strategies involved in getting clients. And, you know, because I I would have to go out and solicit clients, which was all relationship dependent. Mm -hmm. You know, so if I met, it was all networking, meeting people, being effervescent, selling myself having the work to back it up Mm. being memorable so that when people did need a publicist they'd be like oh yeah I remember that girl she was great we should give her a call and you know in generally because I'm a nice person I mean I really am I'm a nice person but being that in all areas of my life is really helpful Mm. and and I think that goes a long way and I you know if if there's something preventing me from being nice to somebody, then I'll either usually confront that or I won't deal with that person. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm nice to everybody. And that's that goes a long way with relationships. And it's it's intentional, but it's also innate for me to be mm-hmm. nice to everyone. So I think I was there was a part of me that was built for being a publicist cuz that's that's kind of part of it is is spreading that that good feeling, you know? Yeah. I want you to feel good about this person. Here's why I'm so excited about them. This is why you should be excited about them. And you can fake that, but it's so much better when it's when it's honest.
1: It's genuine, yeah.
0: So, so yeah, I, I use a lot of that and I also, you know, my my ex-husband is a well, he's he's not anymore, but he was a director and a producer at the time. So there were all these kind of Hollywood relationships that we had that I I kept in touch with these people and a lot of them are my friends now so I had that access and those resources coming into this not ever dreaming that I would be using it for this purpose but I did have them and I I I never let go of those relationships like I kept in touch I'm good at keeping in touch Mm. and, and staying connected and I think that's really helpful too if I had drop connection with people hitting them up to be a guest on the podcast 12 years later would be kind of like, eh. mm-hmm. but since I had, you know, it was as part of my nature and part of my training as a publicist to keep connections up. That was really helpful too.
1: Very cool. So I'm hearing that there's a long game involved here and there's something that's just innate about your process that you hold and being nice in general is, is always good. Can you give us any breakdown of your process that can help someone who maybe doesn't have a deep Rolodex or hasn't had the experience that you have building these relationships? What do you do for someone who maybe isn't in that background of your life? Because we have guests like that too, right? That that don't necessarily, especially now as we have grown, you know, you run out of people. So yeah. yes. <laughs> can, can you just walk us through? So there's
0: a lot of things that I've I've learned to do. So I I am a member of IMDb, it's a yearly membership and it gives you access to everybody's agent, publicist, mm-hmm. uh, manager, et cetera. So their representation. So you can go on and see who represents them and contact those people directly. I DM people on Instagram, you know, and which is which is great, but it's hard if they don't follow you, they may not see that direct message. So and you've heard me say this before. So when if somebody that doesn't follow me, I will slide into the comments as well and direct them to my DM. And I'll make sure I'll strategize those, the comments. So I, I'm not going to comment on something where there's a lot, there's 280 comments because they're probably not going to see mine. They're probably just doing what I do and just liking everything as they go down. So if I'll go back to an older post that didn't get a lot of action because they'll get notified about that. And I'll make a comment there that's genuine about whatever that post is, but also I sent you a DM, please check it out and then let me know I have this podcast, I'd love you to be a guest. And that, that's that's really been helpful.
1: Like, that's a that really works. good strategy. And that's really smart in, le- in leveraging how the algorithm yeah. works. And, and it's very yes. specific to Instagram. So I like that too, because you're not trying to do thousand things at once either, which maybe you are. There's more going on. I know there's more going on, but really honing in on something I think is helps calm the overwhelm with trying to figure something out that feels giant. (laughs) I also, speaking of the long game, if there's somebody that I
0: really want to come on, but they have no idea who I am, I will follow them on Twitter and find the things that I really connect with and retweet those with a comment and, you know, put their at in it. I'm, you know, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. so, but I'll do that a lot. So maybe three months of retweeting mm-hmm. somebody with comments puts me on yeah. their radar. And sometimes we'll start an exchange. And that that creates a Twitter's relationship.
1: Twitter's great for that. I used to do that when I was more focused on writing and filmmaking and stuff. And it really worked. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's a good one yeah. for access. And it's true. It takes time. Mm-hmm. It's farming. It's planting seeds and watering them and weeding. Yeah, that's a great great way to put it because you'll see who doesn't engage over that period of time and you can move on, Mm -hmm. which is good too. It's it's a good way to kind of like curate your own list as well as you move through it. Anything Mm -hmm. else you want to share about that process?
0: I would just say for IMDb, when you're looking at representation, I I always went for agents and managers, and now I never do anymore. I always go for publicists. Mm because agents and managers are looking for paid gigs for their clients. For the most part, publicists are just looking for publicity. Mm -hmm. So they are usually the ones to respond and I'll get more positive responses from them. I'll go to the agent or manager if they don't have a publicist listed, but if they have a publicist, that's who I'm going
1: for. That is such a gem. That's really key information there. That's, you're right. And I would add that what you're doing is you're thinking from the perspective of publicist. who you're interacting with.
0: Yes. Well,
1: and as a publicist, yeah. because you know that that role really well. So you're like, I know what this incentive is, mm-hmm. what this person as a publicist needs. Yes. And I'm going to help serve that for them. And then also understanding that that's not the same motive that an agent has. And right. so really thinking about it on a level of being personal and treating people. As humans, when we think like, well, what do they, what do they want or need? And how Mm -hmm. can I serve their purposes? Now it's a win-win. Yes. That's, that's a really good way to kind of approach everything. I think if we start doing that, everyone feels a little bit more successful. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm really glad you, you said that. So I have just two curious questions Mm. that I think are just fun. So I'm curious, uh, who's been your favorite guest? If you had to name one which is hard to do because I know they're all your friends, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really hard. Okay, let me think. Okay, top three, if that makes it easier. Um,
0: Dolores Robinson is definitely in the top three. She is the mother of Holly Robinson, Pete, who is also one of our guests. She's 84 or five next month. And yep. man, this woman is... of vitality vitality should have her picture next to it in the dictionary she should get that tattooed yes she (laughs) she might have it tattooed
1: (laughs) yeah she might
0: (laughs) um but yeah man talk about fun guest and just an unexpected pleasure i knew she was a pistol but i didn't know how much fun it was going to be to interview her
1: you've got to have her back on yeah, we really do, right? We really should, especially now with every, all, that, all that's changed. I'd be yeah. so curious to see how she, how her positive energy handled the year we just had. Yes. And then, honestly, another
0: 84-year-old guest, Jill Sherry Robinson, the only one who lost Ooh. her memory, she has a million old Hollywood stories. And I did a pre-interview with her that lasted almost three hours, <gasps> oh, wow. And I, I didn't know oh how gosh. I was going to interview her in 30 minutes, honestly. I was like, this isn't going to work. You did a work. great job. Thank you. <laughs>
1: but, and I love her, too. It was so fun oh, uh, working on her episode.
0: Yes. I mean, that was just... It's like, we're going to have her back to tell some of those Hollywood stories because she has a million Hollywood... Like, Jane Fonda was her best friend growing up. Like, nice. they rode horses together. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Oh, wow. And then... This is a little off of that, but I'm gonna talk about Melissa Barker and she's the only one helping other women heal their trauma. Not a fun interview. Even though Melissa is fun. But it was it was really transformative for me and a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from other people. I actually just connected someone else with her today and she's in Forbes magazine today. They did a whole spread on her. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, her her episode is like, she gets right to the meat of it. She talks about her own trauma and then she talks about how women don't deal with trauma and then healing that trauma in the most, I already used the word transformative, but it's, the, it's a succinct way, but it doesn't sound like it's succinct. Like she really takes you on a journey and...
1: It's heartwarming and pragmatic all at once. Thank you. Yeah. Is how I received it. Yeah. And yeah. that is the impression it left on me working on that one. Yes. And you're right. That was a difficult one. And I, I was actually really curious how it went for you because I had to take a break. I had to take a day off.
0: Mid-way yeah. through. The interview was okay. It was the pre-interview that was where I, I experienced more to process interviewing Mm -hmm. her i had kind of already gone through it and i was i was really doing that for for you not for you to barcy but just for the listener like i wanted Mm -hmm. the listener to hear and and go through what i had gone through you know to to have the tools that i got when i first spoke with her so the interview was okay but the our pre-interview call which was another almost three hour call it was like three therapy sessions wow That's intense. That I needed to, I needed a couple days after that to process through. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, just as a disclaimer, like it's, it's not a a very long episode for anyone who wants to listen to it. It is, like we said, it's pragmatic at at times, but it's also very real. Mm -hmm. So if you've experienced any trauma, there's a, I would suggest, you know, there's a, this is the trigger warning. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing that, but. It's definitely worth a listen. Yes. And I don't wish I didn't hear it or, you know, it's, it was very powerful yeah. and relatable. Yeah.
0: And, and I think in, beneficial for mm-hmm. people, especially people like the woman who contacted me yesterday. She heard things in there that she had never talked about and wanted to process them in within the confines of the Phoenix Project, which is Melissa's. This is what mm-hmm. she does. She, she has this virtual community where people can process their trauma. That's free right now, actually. She's not making any money off of it.
1: It's just, it's a good one. But yeah, and it's good because fortunately and unfortunately, it's so relatable. Yes. For a lot of us.
0: But again, it's like that's the reason we do the podcast. Um, Because so many people feel like they're the only ones in the room with that type of trauma or even without the specifics of the trauma, just those feelings or even the fear of that the fear of that can be traumatic and so you're not the only one in the room there are other people in a very large room virtually processing these types of traumas in safe places you know
1: yeah the normalizing is uh, much more useful than it sounds Mm -hmm. and community is a great way to experience that so it's it's pretty pretty cool what she's created yeah okay so i'm going to switch gears again because we can't not talk about hun your co-host yes. scott slaughter which is scott slaughter. when i got that first email i have to say that said scott slaughter on it i was like yeah. is this for real like is this his name that's such a cool name yes. um, he's your partner in life laughter <laughs> with an s oh that's so nice that's much softer than slaughter And he's such a softie, so it's kind of funny that his last name is Slaughter now that I know him. But watching Scott develop his own voice, too, of how he wants to learn from the guest and ask questions and um, his own discoveries has been really fun to see that growth. So I actually wanted to ask you if you could say one thing to Scott that you're most proud of in relation to the podcast, something that you haven't told him yet what would you say i don't know if i haven't told him this
0: but i certainly haven't told him late lately just the courage you know scott was a fly fishing guide in utah mm-hmm. he and his ex-wife owned a boutique he worked at surefoot fitting ski boots on people and he was a cook in the kitchens during like the summer months i don't know one of those months Like a season, he was a cook, and then he'd be a fly fishing guy. So I guess in the Mm -hmm. winter, he was a cook. No experience at all with anything that smacked of production or, or anything in front of, in the limelight. And for him to come in and be willing to not only be an actual voice on this, but to learn everything that he's learned how to do, especially in this last year, meaning the year 2020 to now, Because we no longer record in person, we, he turned his office into a home studio. And not only got all the equipment, procured all the equipment, he learned how to use it. And that, you know, just, I know it was frustrating and I know it was, it triggered his insecurities because it's, it was just brand new territory and everybody that he was learning from had been doing it for a while. And, you know, nobody likes to be the new kid in school. Except for me, <laughs> I like that. But nobody really likes that feeling. And he, man, he was a champ. And he just kept showing up. And he kept being corrected, you know, you know, gently, like by you and other people, and not so gently by some other people. Hmm. But they were just teaching him, you know? Like, you know, he calls somebody to learn how to use a particular piece of equipment, and that's the company, right? Uh. So someone from the company is coming in and acting as though, He should know this this and this already and he doesn't that's frustrating it's frustrating and he but he just hung in there and he Mm -hmm. would say okay can you take me through like this please and and you know now he's producing and Mm -hmm. he he produces the on my nightstand segment you know he sits there with me and he does what you used to do barcy um you know has me repeat certain things or I, i i think you know you should approach this a little bit differently or what if we did this here instead
1: oh, Wow and
0: yeah he's he's really getting getting a feel for for that piece of this whole process in addition to doing the website which you know is a monster
1: yes yes yeah
0: and then the marketing and the advertising and uh, the merchandise and, and there are so many other things I can't even think of them but he does you know he handles all of that. So that I can get guests, and write intros, and do pr- screening calls, and all that stuff, yeah. and, inter- and um, interview people.
1: Wow, yeah, he it's he does so much now, and he did always, and and that was the aim was to give Scott more and more responsibilities. But he's living up to that expectation in a way that I think everyone should feel impressed, including himself. Yes. Yeah. So I I just wanted to give got a moment of like really acknowledging everything that he's been doing and Thank that you. he's done and and he's such a soft spirit that it what it's mm-hmm. true when he wants to learn something new he struggles but is so open and and willing to be humbled by and willing yeah. yeah he's so curious
0: about humanity mm-hmm. he wants mm-hmm. to learn every nuance
1: but that's what makes him so great is that he really cares you know yeah He's he really deep. does. He wants the whole yeah. picture and I am the same way. I totally get that. Yes. Yeah. So we have that in common, him and I. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, speaking of processes, if you could go back to your, yourself two years ago when you were thinking of starting a podcast, you hadn't started yet. What kind of advice would you give yourself now? I would listen to more podcasts mm-hmm.
0: than I did. I listened to a few, but I didn't listen to very many. I think it's just like reading and writing. I think one needs to continue to listen to what's out there Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and listen to different styles, not to imitate, but just to be consuming and consuming that way as well. I think it makes me a better podcaster when I listen to other people. I would also go to more podcasting conferences, festivals, Mm. even though, you know, there's a double-edged sword there because they cost money for the most part, so I, th- I wouldn't be able to afford to go to every single one, nor would I have the time. But I would make it a part of my regular kind of podcasting diet to strategize those out for the year and make sure that I'm hitting ones that'll really be beneficial to to my learning process. Because I go there and I learn so much every time, and some of them is stuff you know stuff I know. But I would rather stay home than anything, like. I love this part of the pandemic, even though I hate what it's done to people and the economy and, you know, that that there are people in the ICUs and people have lost people. And I hate that part. But I really love that I've gotten to stay home and not had a lot of outside social obligations. And I know that part of it is I have anxiety that that's not. It's not really at the surface. It's not something I'm very conscious of. But I I know, knowing myself better now that I have anxiety about showing up at a mixer, and just introducing myself, I do that really well, which is why they I don't, I'm not always connected with the fact that I I'm at, I'm anxious about it. But now that I haven't had to do that for a year, I see how how much I had to kind of put on in order to do that. Even still, When I do that, the benefit that I get from those mixers from it's 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 I there's no other way I could get that. I there are guests that I wouldn't have gotten. There are connections that I wouldn't have had. There are friends that I made that have been really helpful. Podcasters like the most friendly people ever and they will share resources and they'll share tips and they'll share studio space like they'll they'll share everything. And so you get. I've gotten connected with some people who have been so generous with me that I wouldn't have met if I hadn't gone out and networked. And so I think I would have done that more in the beginning. So more networking and more listening to other podcasts. And, and then, you know, more, not just the, the social networking, but more of the, the structured networking events for
1: podcasters. So that's the advice you'd give yourself. What advice would you give someone else who is starting out for the first time? Maybe they're thinking of expanding their own platform and learning about their voice and maybe thinking of podcasting as a solution to that. One of the things I'm going to be talking at
0: PodFest, I'm going to be speaking about broadening the reach of your niche. And I talk about the fact that at that same table that we described earlier, we sat around and like, do we want to make this a podcast? about Black women finding themselves alone in the room. Like, do we want to make it that narrow? And and I really didn't want to. And I'm not unhappy that I didn't. But I think for someone who is starting out new and they have a very narrow niche that they want to pursue, I'd be like, do it. You know, the narrower, the better. And, you know, and don't be discouraged when you, you know, you're hoping for 400 downloads a week and you're only getting 40. Because If you look at like the demos of those 40, like if you're getting 40, um, we talked about diversity, equity and inclusion work earlier, like say there are 40 DEI coordinators that are listening to your podcast about black women being the only people in the room, someone needs to market to DEI coordinators. And they're going to be super excited that you have 40 of them that are listening every week that they can advertise to you and then these dei coordinators will want to buy their products for their schools or their you know corporations or wherever it is that they're working so like understanding that within your niche there's so much opportunity regardless of your numbers the numbers don't really matter that much as long as your demographic is tuning in every week which means you need to have a quality product them to continue to listen to you need to you need to key in on them and make sure that you have something for them every week that way you really have something to sell to an advertiser that's what i would say go for the niche don't worry about the numbers zero in on that that key demographic and and sell that advertising whoever's going to advertise to them be on top of that.
1: Love that answer. I love it so much because it's very affirming for what I want people to understand about success, how to measure it and goals and all of that, which we are going to talk about in tomorrow's episode that we're doing with you, which is all about yeah, you know, I will ask you about your how you measure success and goals and how you organically grew to the strategies that you are applying now, which grew your numbers. I know that we just said don't worry about the numbers, but eventually you shift gears in how you how you measure that success and you're able to jump numbers up to six figures in 4 weeks time and that's pretty impressive. So, but you did a lot of organic growth first. So we're so we're going to talk about that. So if there's someone out there who's like, okay, I want to niche down, I want to get started, I I can, I can deal with measuring my success based on my niche, but then what, right? And so this is that next conversation. So I want people to tune in tomorrow and, and catch this smaller episode that will be much shorter, but really a deep dive into that. So in addition to that, I just want to say thank you. How can people find you and what do you have coming up next? Oh, you can find me at
0: theonlyonepod.com. That's our website. You can also find me on Instagram at at Laura Cathcart Robbins. Someone thought there was Laura Cutthroat Robbins, which I thought was really funny. Cutthroat (laughs) and slaughter coming at (laughs) you. Oh, my God. That should be our production
1: company. Um, (laughs) I will put all the spelling in the show notes, too. And it's not cutthroat. It's (laughs) Cathcart.
0: Okay. Yes. No, it's Cathcart. (laughs) Laura Cathcart Robbins at Laura Cathcart Robbins or at the only one in the room on Instagram. We have a Facebook group, which is the only one in the room on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, please join our group. You only have to answer two questions. What do I call Scott? Which you already know from this episode, which is hun. And then just talk about your favorite episode. And you can name any one of the ones that we talked about as your favorite episode. That will do. Yeah, And that's our Facebook group. And uh, I'm on Twitter at at the only one pod c1 and at lauracrobbins.com and what's next is
1: more amazing podcasts i can't wait to crack it open and start listening while i make them (laughs) yes (laughs) and while my team makes them and then i just peruse yes (laughs) how nice it's it's necessary at this point <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on the show i had such a pleasure talking to you in this format and learning more about the backstory of everything mm, thank you for having me barcy i just love you i love you <laughs> thank you for listening to be Bold begin don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so as not to miss an episode So the best way to ensure you get all the new episodes is by subscribing. Help us build a positive community by joining the Facebook group, also called Be Bold Begin. I'll be checking it daily to answer and acknowledge any of your questions and comments. Stay positive and safe out there.